today on Ag News Daily. No matter what business, what protein we raise or what crop we raise, we are true-blooded American farmers and we all need to be on the same page and not against each other at any point in time. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It is a Wednesday afternoon here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. Delaney Howell joined by Mike Pierce. And Mike, it is a dreary, cold day here in central Iowa. What about wherever you are? Well, I'm also in central Iowa oh, okay. for the time being. Yes, I verify your weather report. The way <laughs> it, is, it is a little chilly. It's a little dreary. This cold front continues to persist across much of the yeah. northern Corn Belt. However, the market isn't terribly worried about what this is doing to emerged crops. We're not seeing much of a pickup in corn. We're seeing beans sell off, which we'll get to in the market section here before we talk uh, for our interview today. But uh, yeah, it's just more frustration, I think, for a lot of folks out there trying to get this crop up. But at the same time, you know, maybe this will do something to switch some makers around, limit some corn production. Brings us back to that point that uh, maybe yesterday's corn supply from USDA might be the highest of the season. Yeah, I think it was, isn't this the record, the largest uh, corn production or corn carryout on record that we've ever had? No, it's the largest though in about 25 years. Okay. If, if it verifies at 3.3 right. whatever billion bushels, it would be the largest going back to gotcha. I think 93 or 94, well before, you know, the ethanol boom, well mm-hmm. before, uh, and I should say largest stocks to use ratio since 1993-1994. In terms of raw bushels, I don't have that information handy. Okay, got it. I read that somewhere and I was like, yeah, I I can't remember exactly what that is, but okay, got it. Well, actually, speaking of ethanol, Mike, got some news here on the ethanol front of things. A little update for those of you who are watching the ethanol industry pretty closely and hopes it recovers here if we do have that much corn this year, especially with 97 million acres the USDA forecasted. But we've seen more than 130 biofuel plants now either have to fully shut down or partially shut down and we've seen motor fuel demand for all industries plunge to a 50-year low so we've seen the renewable fuels association growth energy national biodiesel a group of about 15 different organizations have sent a letter to both the speaker of the house nancy pelosi and senate majority leader mitch mcconnell on Monday because they're very concerned about this industry, rightfully so. And, you know, as we continue to see Congress working on another round of stimulus package, the biofuels industry says, hey, it's our turn to get a little piece of that pie because we have not really received any sort of funding or help in any of the relief packages passed. And they're definitely an industry that's struggling right now. Absolutely. And they were dealt another blow. Granted, it's a small blow, but earlier today it was announced that Columbia uh, the country is putting a almost a 20 cent per gallon tariff on U.S. ethanol imports into that country. Uh, they say this is part of an ongoing investigation into the dumping of ethanol and, you know, basically undercutting domestic suppliers. And uh, Renewable Fuels Association and the Grains Council and Growth Energy all got together and they said, while we have cooperated fully with the investigating authorities in Colombia to demonstrate these final duties are unjustified, the Colombian government sided with Colombia's ethanol industry. MinSIT, which is the Colombian Ministry of whatever charges tariffs, uh, their decision was not supported by evidence and raises questions regarding the ministry's compliance with standard CBD procedures. So this is a fight that the tariffs are going into place, but it sounds like the ethanol industry is going to continue to battle 
these tariffs in Colombia going forward. Well, all right, that's not, uh, I mean, I guess we need some demand somewhere, so maybe not great news. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we'd love to be, we're not competitive shipping ethanol with the 20 no. cent tariff onto, into Colombia. No, absolutely not. Well, taking things back here domestically, I want to update our listeners. I've gotten a little more information, a little more clarity on some of the CARES package that has been passed this far. I was talking to Gary Rasmussen, who is a farmer up in Michigan, dairy farmer up there, row crop farmer up there. He shared with me today that he had to apply for that coronavirus relief package we keep talking about, but he did get a loan and he also got a direct deposit right into his account which you can get up to ten thousand dollars i don't know how they determine how much you get paid but that portion is free and clear money the loan portion he said was one year of interest free which is essentially a line of credit here one year interest free and then three and a half percent interest after that. He said you have to apply for it though. It doesn't automatically just get put into your account like the MFP payments did. So a little bit of clarity from him. I also wanted to add to that, that we're also watching very closely right now what is going on out in Washington DC because the house is expected to vote Friday on a new $3 trillion, trillion with a T coronavirus relief bill that would authorize another $16.5 billion in direct farm payments. So this new one is going to be called the HEROES Act. And there's quite a bit of different stimulus that's um, part of that. Biofuels potentially could get some money in there. Livestock producers, especially those that are having to euthanize animals, it sounds like could receive some specific funding as part of this trillion three trillion dollar bill but the only downside is it doesn't sound like the house is all too eager to get things passed quickly and they went on to say senate majority leader mitch mcconnell says for the senate side of things they're not really a big hurry so it doesn't sound like this is going to be a quick moving bill but there is the potential that we see a, a lot more funding coming to the pipeline yeah and i would say it's potent potential, not necessarily probable, Delaney, as you mentioned, there's a lot of infighting amongst folks in D.C. My take on the matter is that most of this Senate bill has been written by the Democratic uh, side of the aisle, and the Republicans are maybe not so excited about it. And of course, the Republicans in the House are, are not willing to consider much of it at all. So there's going to be a huge discussion before this thing does end up eventually, potentially, possibly, maybe not probably. Right. <laughs> right. But we do have a report as we talk about demand, you know, we've talked about demand destruction for the ethanol industry. We've talked about demand destruction for crude oil. We've talked about potential demand destruction for soybeans as we look out at, you know, maybe this trade war with China coming back online. Uh, we've also had incredible demand destruction for cotton. Uh, we don't talk a whole lot about cotton on this program. I know most of our listeners are up here in the Corn Belt, but University of Georgia um, did their extension service, put together a fascinating report looking at world cotton demand. And remember, we grow a lot of cotton in this country, but we don't process much cotton. Most of our cotton is exported to countries with uh, cheaper labor, where it is spun into textiles and clothing and so forth. And most of that happens in China, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Turkey, and Vietnam. Well, cotton spinning in China 
when COVID-19 went through that country, dropped 90%. And now we're seeing COVID spread fast in Turkey, India, and Pakistan. And all of these countries are expected to see their uh, spinning industries drop similarly. So cotton, which has been trading pretty consistently along with the stock market, stock market climbs, cotton has been climbing, stock market sells, cotton's been selling off. This could perhaps throw a wrench into that, and we could see cotton start to break pretty hard here if this uh, coronavirus keeps spreading in those important countries for uh, textile production. So this is something we're going to keep an eye on. And if you are a cotton producer, let us know how, uh, how planting is going for you guys, what you're seeing this year, what you expect come harvest time, and how aggressive are you being getting prices taken right now um shoot us a message you can find us on social media on facebook twitter and instagram at ag news daily let us know how things are going down in cotton country isn't cotton usually about done being planted by now yeah it, it usually is because they're so far south right yeah okay that's what i was thinking we need to have brent on here brent from the dryline farmer podcast he's a cotton Absolutely. farmer brent would be a great resource he would be indeed well, speaking of commodities, the big other headline, I suppose you could say, coming across the wires today is a big sale reported by the USDA. They reported on Wednesday a sale of 396,000 metric tons of soybeans to China. So we are continuing to watch China come to the buying table. We really need to try and find somebody to chat about this with us, don't we, Mike? Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's soybean exports. We're also talking imports in the market, specifically beef imports. I've mentioned several times the potentiality of Brazilian beef making its way north into this country and how that has been cut short by the outbreak of coronavirus and a lot of meat plants in Brazil. But there is one country who has been sending meat north of the border, and that is Mexico. Um, basically, they are anticipating a 12% growth in Mexican beef exports into the U.S. this year. This is spurred by those high prices that we're seeing at the retail counter. Mexican beef is very competitive, and it's being spurred by the shutdowns in the processing plants here in this country, or now that most of these plants are back online, the slowdowns in the line speeds now that they're separating workers and you know practicing more social distancing and so forth. Um, basically, Mexican beef imports into the U.S. totaled nearly 87,000 tons for, from the beginning of the year through the first week in May, which is almost 8,000 tons higher than the same period a year before. So we are seeing exports or imports rather tick up of, of Mexican beef into the U.S. And it looks like that trend is going to continue. These high prices are working to cure themselves as retailers look for beef from any place possible. Yeah, I mean... We know it's happening. I, you know, I honestly haven't been to a grocery store in the last two weeks to even see if we are missing beef on the shelves or pork on the shelves. Have you, Mike? Well, I tell you what, I went to Fairway, which is a grocery store here in Iowa. It's a grocery store chain. They're known for their uh, well-stocked meat cases. And I went seeking out ribeyes yesterday. Mm. Nice, uh, you know, uh, choice cuts of ribeye. And they were out, completely out of ribeyes. They had ordered several boxes to be delivered on Monday, but none of them had come. And instead, I ended up with New York strips, which were still delicious. I mean, American yeah. beef producers, we do a heck of a good – they do. I'm no longer amongst them. <laughs> they do a great job producing tasty, flavorful beef. And um, the New York strips were great, but they, you know, they, they weren't ribeyes, which is really what I was had a yeah. hand for yesterday. Yeah, for sure. I just want to make note that Mexico, even with this bump in exports to the U.S., is still the third largest foreign beef supplier to our country. Australia and Canada still outrank them 
um, basically by a factor of about four. So Mexico exports are growing. We're probably also seeing exports grow, uh, probably not from Canada because they have had several beef, beef plant shutdowns similar to the U.S., but I wouldn't be surprised if some Australian beef is, uh, more Australian beef is making its way to our country as lean ground trimmings predominantly for grinding into hamburger. Absolutely. Yes, indeed. I just have one other quick story. Delaine, do you have any other news for us today? I don't have any others. All right. Well, this is something that uh, we talked about back in December, and it is back in the news again. Two failed Democratic presidential candidates, who are also senators, have introduced a bill that was talked about back in December. This is Senator Cory Booker's Farm System Reform Act, and uh, now it has been introduced with the backing of Senator Elizabeth Warren, uh, two senators with virtually no farm state experience or apparently understanding of how American agriculture operates. Part of what this bill is designed to do is to ban factory farming. And to define factory farming, they are looking at the EPA's definition of a CAFO, concentrated animal feeding operation. And I think for a lot of our listeners, the ceiling set by what determines a CAFO is laughably small. It's 2,500 hogs, 1,000 head of cattle, or 700 cows, and it's a bunch of birds. I forget the bird number. 125,000? I Don't quote me on that. I don't have that number handy. Um, but they're, they're basically saying that anything larger than that is a factory farm that is working to destroy the food industry, and they want to see a moratorium on all new construction um, after 2020 if this bill were to pass. They're going to offer buyouts to growers who are currently, you know, farming one of these uh, factory farms. And then uh, by 2040, they want to have the largest of these operations phased out. Now, what they don't address is how in the world the food supply system is going to work. I mean, the reason we have such concentration in the animal industry is because it is a tight margin business. You need a lot of animals making a few bucks an animal to make a living. I don't know if they think that like people are going to work in town and go home and care for a hundred fat steers on feed. And try, I guess I, I don't see what their end game is here with this, with this bill they've proposed, but they've proposed it. It's up for discussion. I really doubt it goes anywhere, but uh, it's certainly generating a nice little bit of attention for those two, no doubt seeking places in a potential Biden administration here this fall. Delaney had to run Mike. So it's just me and you. All right. Well, I'm glad we're talking to Ashton. Ashton Carr, I tell you what, uh, what should we do? Maybe talk about the market prices for the day? I think we should. Let's do it, folks. And as I mentioned, we've got a downturn in the markets. We've got a lot of red on the screen across uh, multiple markets. Looking at the grains, we've got the July corn contract down four and a half cents at 317 and three quarters. December down three and three quarters at 332 even. In soybeans, the July Big day to the downside, down 12 and three quarter cents at 839 and a quarter. November down 12 even to finish at 845 even. Over in the wheat market, July, Chicago down 13 and a quarter at 501 and a quarter. December down 12 and a half cents at 515 even. Looking at livestock, there was some mixed trade to start the day, but it quickly weakened. In the June live cattle contract, again, we're trading expanded limits since we were limit up yesterday. Um, the June contract was down $3.30 at 9387 50. The August down $3.27.5 at 98.42.50. Over in feeder cattle, the August contract down $2.67.5 at 133.0750. September down 27.25, closing at 134.37.50. And weakness in 
lean hogs as well. The June contract down $3.45 at 57.87 half. The July down $2.35 to close at 59.12.50. Looking over at the dairy market in the class three milk today, the move to the upside continues. The May contract up 28 cents on the day at 12.01. June up 75 cents. This is the second 75 cent move, I believe, this week. Close the day at 15. 35. Without further ado, let's kick it over to our interview here for this Wednesday. Hey guys, when I'm not hosting the Ag News Daily podcast, I'm actually helping out with Iowa Farm Bureau's Spokesman Speaks podcast. If you're from Iowa, you're probably familiar with the Spokesman newspaper. It has the largest readership of any ag newspaper in Iowa. The Spokesman Speaks podcast is essentially an extension of that newspaper, reaching farmers and ag professionals like you on the go with the stories that matter most. In this week's episode, we talk with the new chair of Iowa State University's Department of Animal Science, who also happens to be the host of RFD-TV's popular Doc Talk program. We also chat with Iowa Farm Bureau President Craig Hill, who fills us in on the most pressing needs he's hearing directly from farmers as he's conducting listening sessions around the state. You'll also want to check out a special one-on-one interview we did with Senator Chuck Grassley on April 27th, featuring his latest insights on current and future COVID-19 relief. You can find and subscribe to the Spokesman Speaks podcast in your favorite podcast app, or go to iowafarmbureau.com slash podcast. Well, as promised, we are continuing the discussion about how COVID-19 is impacting our supply chain, specifically talking pork today with Rob Brenneman of Brenneman Pork. Rob, thank you for joining. I'm sure you've got a very busy schedule right now trying to sort out all of these logistical nightmares I can only imagine you're having. Yep, it's uh, it changes by the minute. I am no sure question. I'm sure of that. Rob, before we talk about some of the nitty gritty of what's going on right now for the pork industry and more specifically your pork operation and system, tell us a little bit more about Brenneman Pork for those of our listeners who aren't familiar with how you guys work. So Brenneman Pork is a family owned operation. Um, we're located between Washington and Kelowna. We have a Washington address, Iowa. Um, and so, you know, we got four kids, they're all married, we got 12 grandkids, and the kids are all involved in some fashion, either in ownership, they have buildings, um, they also have, the, they have businesses of their own, you know, and they, you know, they do things for our company and other, other operations around and, and other types of businesses. So they're all, they all live within a mile, um, we're a fair to finish operation. Uh, we have our own feed mill. It's located on what we call the home farm. And the home farm, it's in Washington County. It's, you know, it's actually closer to Kelowna. Um, we farm, we farm ground on, you know, as kind of a place to put manure and we raise mostly corn and, um, the two of the kids have ground too. And, so it all kind of ties together to make one big family operation. 
Absolutely. So. And so, Rob, when you when we're looking at your operation in particular, are you guys considered independent growers or are you contracted with someone in particular? We are independent growers. Um, we everything we um, sell the market we own, and um, then we have a lot of people who contract finish for us or contract nursery. Um, but yeah, we would be an independent grower. Gotcha. But to put it in perspective for people that don't know that part of Iowa, I mean, Washington County or Washington, Iowa, where you live is a huge pork production area. I think if I'm not mistaken, it's the number one county of pork production in the entire United States. Is that right, Rob? No, it's like number three. Okay. Three or four. I can't remember which it is. It's pretty high up there, though. It's up there. Yep. Mm Mm-hmm. There's a couple counties in North Carolina that would exceed us. Gotcha. But last I checked, I believe we're the number one county in Iowa. Yes, I believe that's... Not 100%, but if not, we're darn close. Yep, I believe you're pretty close there. And not Mm -hmm. only that, but the Tyson facility that shut down and is reopened now, but not at full production, Columbus Junction. That's a pretty important facility for you guys, is it not? Yep. Tyson facility is in Lewiser County in Columbus Junction, and 90 plus percent of our pigs go to that facility. And we've had a great relationship with Tyson over the years. And um, we also have three loads a day that go to JBS and the Tumwa. And, um, you know, we get along... We get along great with both packers. So, And Rob, has the JBS facility in Atumwa, has that been altered at all, operating hours? It, they Today or tomorrow will be the first time they've altered what's going on down there. They've been, they've been overall been getting along really, really well. Um, but here in the last week, they've had a few more issues with, you know, with the amount of employees that are showing up for work and sounds like they're slowing down some, um, but they've been doing really well until then. And um, Tyson facility in Columbus Junction, we're hoping, we are hoping and praying that by the end of this week or the first part of next week, they're back up to hopefully full capacity down there. I know they've had struggles. Some days are better than others, but if we can really kind of hate to say anything, but we kind of hope they're on the, on the track to get better every day and so far they have absolutely when you look at your operation you mentioned there that about 90 percent of your production is heading to that columbus junction facility when they were closed Mm -hmm. down what were you dealing with as far as logistics go so for the first the entire it was the first plant to close the other plants were still um were still taking pigs up tyson and so they shared um they shared in the love of, you know, like Logansport, Waterloo, and Perry. So we took some pigs to there. We did get cut back considerably, but we still took pigs to the other plants. We drove pigs to Logansport on Sunday nights and sometimes during the week. And um, and then Perry took pigs and, and Waterloo took pigs. We never took any of the other two plants. Um, but so that helped, that helped considerably. Um, you know, we didn't get as many as we had been getting, uh, but we were able to start um, the pigs behind them. We started putting a few more in the buildings, the men at this cut loose, and so that's what we've been doing. We've just been either double stocking wing pigs into finishers. Um, we, you know, we 
put more pigs in the finisher when we loaded them um, to try and buy time. Um, we changed the rations on being how we were kind of like this was starting to happen. We kind of felt that we could get cut back. And so we changed the ration on the finishing pigs to slow them down so they wouldn't get extremely big. And that did work really, it, it, or it is working really well. Um, so we slowed the pigs down, uh, topped out a few more loads, and then now we're trying to empty pigs, you know, empty barns so we can do the same thing, put a few more in them. Um, and as of today, we're down, we're down, over the last five weeks, we sold a little, little less than 50% of the total pigs wow. that we needed to go to market, to market. Wow. Um, so it's, it's getting really, really crucial in timing. So hopefully Logan's Port and Waterloo are starting up today. And hopefully that, um, takes some pressure off of Columbus Junction and it allows us to get more pigs into there. We've got maybe two to three weeks before we're going to have to make some major decisions. And, and we hope that it picks up ahead of that. Yeah. And, and those major decisions that you're talking about, are, are you referring to having to make the decision of euthanizing pigs? Yes, we will have to make that decision in the next two to three weeks. I think a lot of producers are facing that decision right now, and I can't even imagine what you're having to face or, or the financial strain, the emotional strain that that decision ties to. When you're making those decisions, how do you go about deciding what to do? I, I think the decision will have to be made when we know we no longer have an an option. If we've exhausted all the options, which trust me, we're going to exhaust every option we can exhaust. Um, now you know because you can't you can't do things like turn. 10,000 pigs out into a pasture or cornfield. We, you know, that's, that's something that's probably out of the question unless something miracle happened there. Um, but you know, we're going to exhaust all the options. We're going to exhaust it. And, and, but the key to this whole thing is, is the Tyson plants all running at a greater capacity than they have been the last three to five weeks. And if we can maintain, if we can just get back to maintaining the number of pigs that we would have normally sold in a week without even trying to catch up, that would at least maintain us for another three to probably three months. Uh, and that's our, our hope and prayers are that the next two weeks, the Tyson plants pick up and get back to quote, hopefully somewhat normal. And then we can get the majority of the pigs that we would normally take in a week into those, into at least Columbus Junction and um, and hopefully other other plants around us so the guys can get their pigs in. And if we can, if it can get back to that pace, then we might be able to nurse it along for another three or four months. But yeah, I mean, it's I, all in the it's all in the hands of the people coming back to work. Right, and, and I think that's one of the elements that we keep forgetting about as we're talking about this discussion is not only are you potentially not going to be able to 
send those hogs to market, but you've had now, if, if hogs, if you pulled them back on feed, if they're still at your facilities, you've got a couple weeks worth of hogs backed up that need to be processed that have to get trickled or filtered through the system. And you're thinking that it's going to take you, just to clarify, about three months yep. to get caught back up? It, we have, right now, we have almost 60,000 pigs that have been backed up over the last almost five and a half weeks. So I'll be six weeks, I think, tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So we have that many backed up. So if if we would normally take 20-plus thousand a week to a plant or a few more, it would, you know, if they... It, it would probably it'll probably take at least four to six months to unwind wow. unwind what has happened at at least that long because when everybody does get back to full capacity everybody's backed up mm -hmm. um, and and the backing up I can live with I just do not want to use the nice pigs that's just not in my DNA I our goal is to save every pig we went to a lot of work to do that right. you know to so the consumer has a product to eat, and it it absolutely makes no sense to me that we would have to get you know euthanized pigs ready for market, and the grocery store shelves are empty. There's something wrong with that picture. Yeah, absolutely, and that that leads me nicely to my last question. Talking about the grocery stores, from your perspective, do you think these forecasts of you know, I guess we're probably about at that two week mark where people were forecasting that we would see pork shortages at the grocery store. Do you think it's really as bad as what folks are forecasting from a ground level? I think it's really as bad. And I think that um, it's going to get worse. And I don't think that, honestly, I don't think the consumer is aware of about what's to happen. Um, it's going to, it's going to get worse. We cannot, I mean, the supply, the extra supply is basically gone. And when we look at running at 50 or 60%, even if we get there next week to the whole nation running 60 plus percent, that's not enough to fill the grocery stores and the restaurants that are wanting to come back on. And I hope they do because we don't want to see anybody's business suffer because of this, but the, the, there will be a gap and it, there will be, there will be meat shortages. There's absolutely no question. Um, and I, and, and I think as consumers and as Americans that we need to wake up and realize what's being handed to us. And I think, um, I think we're being, I think we're being duped by the somewhere by the government or somebody because what's happening today should not be happening. Absolutely. The, you know, yeah. It just doesn't make sense. None of it makes sense. And that, and that's what's scaring our workers away, is too much media saying, you know, all the propaganda is going out. And so the workers that are in these packing plants are scared to go to work because of all the exaggeration mm -hmm. of the problem. Yeah, I, I, you know, nobody wants anybody to, you know, to die because of the problem. But um, there's a lot of things going on that I don't think any of us understand. No, I would agree. Well, it's been interesting nonetheless to hear what you guys are dealing with. I I don't envy your position at all, but I'm grateful that you're able to share some of it with us. Rob, thank yep. you so much for joining. Yep. Yep. And I think, you know, I think it comes back to the key the key point of of our entire farming prayers or anybody's 
is that we all depend on each other. And, and I've got a statement that, that it's all for one and one for all. And I think agriculture today needs to, needs to take a look in the mirror and say, you know, who are our friends and how we're going to continue ahead because we are all in this together, no matter what business, what protein we raise or what crop we raise, we are true blooded American farmers and we all need to be on the same page and not against each other at any point in time. So. All right. Well, Rob, fascinating there, inside look at the hog industry. And, uh, you know, there's so many challenges there in all of our markets right now. Hogs are no exception. In fact, they have definitely borne the brunt of it. It has been a struggle to watch. But Ashton, our listeners, if they want to get caught up on any past episodes, can visit our website. What is the website address? Do you remember that? I believe so. It's globalagnetwork.com slash agnewsdaily. That is correct, folks. Check it out. You can check out our past episodes. You can also check out the episodes of the other podcasters on the Global Ag Network. We mentioned Brent from the Dryline Farmer Podcast. Check his out. He's right there on the website. You can also visit us on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Ag News Daily and we'll be there. And with that, Ashton, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.